Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Bible Worm. We recently passed something of a podcasting milestone with our 100,000th download. To celebrate, we're re-releasing our very first podcast episode from September of 2019, back when we were still in LDR. First, I talk with Amy for a few minutes about our experience of creating Bible Worm, and then we share that episode. It's not great, y'all, but at least we can celebrate how far we've come. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, so we're getting ready to celebrate our 100,000th download of the Bible Worm podcast. Can you believe that? I honestly cannot. That is really very crazy. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's really crazy. Yeah. When we started out, we were just hoping like that our moms would listen to us or something. I don't think either one of our moms probably actually listened to us. Honestly, when we started out, I was just looking forward to having a reason to have a conversation with you once a week about biblical text. And people listening helps me because it raises the bar and makes me actually get off the couch instead of eating yes. cookie dough in my pajamas and turn on a recording <laughs> device. But yeah. um, the reward was always in that for me. So the fact that a hundred thousand times individuals have found it worthwhile <laughs> to download our episodes is is unbelievable. Amazing. It's wonderful. I was gonna ask you, that's what so for our hundred thousandth uh, download, we're gonna just I'm gonna re-release our very first podcast, <laughs> the oh, Genesis 1-1 from God. 2019, yeah, the, with all the bad sound and everything. I just wanted to ask you what you remember about getting started. You said you, we did it because we wanted to, I mean, it was, my New Year's resolution in 2019 was I wanted to talk to you more because you're important to me and, and we sort of lost touch for a while. And so that was my initial motivation was I just want to, I just want to talk to Amy <laughs> but I was just curious, like, do you remember, like, what do you remember about how we decided to start the podcast? I remember um, I was in an administrative role at a synagogue. I was an executive director, which is a really important role, but not a really, um, uh, not a really Jewish role. I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Like, my cup was not being filled just by that work. And I had resolved that I was going to look for more opportunities to write, but writing is lonely. Mm. (laughs) Thinking is fun, but writing is lonely. Yeah. And then you asked me if I wanted, wanted to do this together with you. And I mean, you what, like asked me on a Thursday and we recorded it on Sunday. Like, you know, (laughs) I can't remember the time exactly. No idea. No idea what you were doing, but it just was such a, I don't know. It, 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 it was such a gift to me. It still is such a gift to me to like have this space to like think and be sort of playful and strange and real and serious. And I don't know, this, this space still feels so alive to me and I Mm -hmm. never know what kind of nonsense might happen during our conversations. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My, my recollection of that conversation, like in my head, I was sitting in my car in the parking lot at Hendrix, like right behind my building and talk, I, I was like August of 2019. And we were, I don't know what we were talking about. 
And I think it was like a Monday, maybe. And I said, I decided we should do a podcast together. And you were like, okay. And then we we really did. We recorded on a Friday and released it on a Sunday. And when you when when you listen to the the episode, you can tell. It uh, shows. You can tell. I did not know anything about sound. I didn't know how to edit the edit anything. You, as I recall, did not wear headphones when we had that conversation, and so it's like That's you can hear me echoing back through there. It was not. It was not great. But like I remember, I don't know. Like probably a couple hundred people listened to that podcast and we got some positive feedback and I felt so encouraged about it and I was like oh wow this is actually useful for some folks so I get to talk to you and so uh back then we so were nervous. NLDR I was so nervous we that's yeah, right we yeah, were yeah. NLDR mm-hmm. the yeah. joke that nobody would get the, nobody got it some people got the NL and some people got the DR but there was like mm-hmm. three people who understood the whole but those are three very special people they're our favorite people <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so I have I appreciate your coming along on this podcasting journey with me. I love talking to you every week and I love wrestling over these texts and just kind of thinking about text and life and trying to have a little bit of a commitment to justice and also a sense of humor about about things. I I have appreciated working with you. (laughs) I've loved working with you too, Bobby. And do, do okay, this I'm just asking off the cuff. Do you have a favorite moment or episode <laughs> that comes to mind? I um, I thought about, and then I just decided this was too much work in that way that, <laughs> like part of my approach to Bible Worm has been like, what's the best thing we can do for the minimal amount of work? That's been sort of the, the bar for me. Mm-hmm. I thought about doing like a, you know how, like special episodes with clips from the past, like they do on sitcoms or whatever. Huh? <laughs> I thought about that doing one be, of those. That would be awesome. Maybe, Maybe we'll do one sometime, but I I couldn't pull it together for this. But the one, the very first thing that always comes to mind for me is our first year podcast on Isaiah 40, when you <laughs> proposed the idea of doing hand puppets <laughs> to separate the voices. The grass withers, <laughs> the flower fades, <laughs> but the... I still oh, remember where I remember the room I was sitting in when we did that because you were like, "Wait, you want to do what now?" What <laughs> grass withers? <laughs> like a good idea in my head. No, oh, it totally worked. Like that transformed my understanding of that text. Like it was beautiful. And I, I actually the other day, somebody who a local person who listens to the podcast asked me when we're going to do the Bible Worm puppet show so i think we could actually (laughs) take it on the road if we wanted to that's a good idea what about you do you have a favorite moment favorite episode i have this um the silly moment that stands out to me it's so silly but i remember i was listening to this episode probably because i was preparing to teach on the text and you and I descended into such a land of laughter that like I was on a walk and I had to stop on the side of the road because I was <laughs> laughing so hard. It was, I think I was talking, I don't know if I was New Testament, we're talking about communion or maybe we're talking about the Passover sacrifice. I was trying to bring in this like ritual theory idea of how sharing food creates an existential connection between two people because this thing that was once one, like one animal or one loaf of bread or whatever, now is like making up the atoms of individual people. It was a very like serious and profound, very profound moment. But somehow I tied it to like 
trying to eat the leftovers from like the boy I had a crush on in middle school because <laughs> he had eaten <laughs> some of it. And, was it? You and you just leftovers you, the, you were like off to the races. You were like, we're gonna talk about this for 20 minutes now, and I have a lot of follow-up questions. And that's pretty much what the podcast episode was about after that. What was the matter with middle school Amy? What did you stole food off of his plate or something? Like after he well, left the you table. embellished the story. <laughs> I think I just tried to drink out of soda cans. He drank out. Oh, of. okay. But okay. It, when you told it, I was like eating his potatoes, which made it much funnier. <laughs> yeah. So I have decided that we're. I don't know. Maybe it'll be for our two hundred thousandth download. But I've decided we're going to do a special, a special episode. Oh, it could be like our. I don't know. Sometime we're going to do one where I go back and get clips from all our old podcasts. Probably no one will want to listen to that. Yeah. But we can we listen, can listen to, it, to it. And we can think it's hilarious. <laughs> and we can make a little video of our friendship through the years. Oh, that would be through so nice. Through the years, you never let me down. Yeah, it's going to be great. A friend's a friend forever. No, that's not the one. <laughs> uh, we'll sing the whole soundtrack. This has been a good conversation, Bobby. Thank you. For it has been a good conversation. So we just want to say thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast every week, or even if you uh, only listen once in a while. It gives us a good excuse to read text together and to talk to each other and to keep our friendship up. And we're grateful that it's been meaningful to to some folks out there. Very, very grateful. L'chaim, here's to the next 100,000. Yes. And enjoy this look back on our first episode of NLDR. God help us. Welcome to the very first episode of NLDR, the narrative lectionary podcast for people on the go. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson. This week I sat down with my co-host, Dr. Amy Robertson, to discuss the creation story in Genesis 2, 4 through 25. As biblical scholars, we talked about some of the curious details of this text, the way it portrays God and the creation of human beings, our relationship to plants, animals, and the earth. As faith practitioners, we talk about how we think this text might have relevance to our own communities of faith. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Thanks for joining us. I'm Bobby. This is Amy. Do you want to say a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, My name is Amy Robertson. I am... um, In my daily life, the executive director of a reconstructionist synagogue in Atlanta. Um, The synagogue was founded by the gay and lesbian community, but I myself am a straight, cis, married, white woman. Um, I'm Jewish, but I'm just me. I don't claim to represent the views of anyone other than myself. Um, I'm a parent. I have two kids. I have a teenager and a tween. Um, and that informs a lot of my thinking about life in general these days. Uh, I'm a Bible scholar at Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas, just outside of Little Rock. Uh, we're a United Methodist affiliated school, but I myself am a Presbyterian. Um, I'm ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA. Uh, my daily faith community is a little church in Little Rock called Mercy Community Church, which mostly uh, our members are people who live on the street homeless or um, housing unstable folks. Uh, And so that informs the way that I come to the text as well. 
So our text for this week, uh, starting out, is Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 4b. This, uh, in the Bible, is the second story of creation. So in Genesis chapter 1, we just had the God said, let there be light, and there was light story. And this chapter seems to kind of reset the story of creation a little bit. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, I'm reading the New Revised Standard Version. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So why don't we uh, stop just right there at verse 8. In listening to that text, Amy, what kinds of things are standing out to you as important? I think um, what's really at the front of mind, my mind is how different this story is than the creation story that we just read in Genesis one, where there's an abundance of water. There's so much water. Water's the problem, like separating the water above from the water below. And then we're separating. So like we're separating the skies from the oceans and then we're separating the water on earth. So there can be dry land. And in this story, it seems to be a problem that there's been no rain and that's why nothing's growing because there's a lack of water, which just sort of underscores for me how different these two perspectives on um, on creation are. Um, and then the other part of it is just this sort of like intimacy of the idea that, uh, God breathes life into mm. the nostrils of a human and then made a little garden for the human. It's like going to the pet store and getting like a terrarium for your lizard. Like you, like there's this sort of uh, it's so different than the first creation story, which is so, let's think this grand cathedral um, of creation. And this is like a little, like sweet terrarium. One of the things, the where you were, where you finished up there, one of the things that's always interesting to me in this text is it seems like what God really wants is a garden, right? The problem is there's no yeah. one to tend the garden. So mm-hmm. I can't plant the garden unless there's someone to tend it. So first I'm going to create, somebody to work the garden, and then I can plant the garden. So human beings, in my reading of this text, are almost secondary to the the garden itself, Um, which is kind of an interesting perspective. We we tend to read the Bible as kind of a little, the Bible is all about us. But here, to me, it seems that the creation is really the point, and we're useful in, in as much as we're able to take care of the creation. But mm-hmm. the creation is really the thing that God is kind of after. I really, you mentioned the word intimacy and that breathing of breath. And one of the other things that stands out to me in this text is that, um, that verb, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Mm-hmm. That verb form, you know, in Hebrew is yatsar. Um, the noun form yotzer means a potter. And so this verb yotzer means to form like in kind of an artistic way or God's functioning like, like a potter or like a sculptor. Um, and this kind of intimate, like hands are in the dirt forming in this kind of artistic fashion, this human being 
that then receives the breath of life. Like it's just this beautiful idea of an art, kind of an artistic God who's intimately connected to human beings through, uh, through that breath. But we should probably also mention that relationship that you can't see in English, but you see it in Hebrew of the word. This translation is man, but the, the word in Hebrew is probably better translated as human. But the word Adam, which is related, of course, to the Hebrew Adama for ground. So the Adam comes from the Adama, the, the groundling comes from the ground. And one of the, I, I remember our old professor, John Hayes, used to say, um, if you want to capture the, the image in English, instead of calling the first human Adam, you would call him Dusty, right? Because he's just, he's made up of dust. <laughs> and, uh, it, the name reminds us that we are dirt, right? So then verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now that God has the garden in place, or the human in place, that we can plant the garden. And so there's all of these trees, there's everything that's pleasant and good for food, and then these two trees that are named, the tree of life, and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we know if we've read before is going to become a problem in, in the next chapter. It's just so strange to have God place Adam in this garden with these, you know, with these trees and say, don't touch that one. Like, do you really expect that they're not going to touch that one? It's, it, it's strange. It is strange. We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. So this next little section of this text, I have no idea what to do with it. And most often I skip over it, but it's there. And so we ought to talk about it. And I'm curious what you make of it. Mm -hmm. So in verse 10, a river flows out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. I mean, what I first make of that is I like the locatedness and sort of specificity of it. I mean, it really in both creation stories, sort of the attention to to loving the details of the story and sort of the, the importance of that like concreteness about it. Um, and then, of course, I read some commentaries, and and they say nobody knows where it, where these where this garden is supposed to be based right. on the description. So, so was this really a place, and we just don't know where it is? I, you know, I don't know. But just reading it as a narrative. I like the locatedness of it. I think, I think that matters. I think it matters where we live and the surroundings that um, we have and the specifics of the place that we care for and interact with. One thing that um, has, is sticking out to me here is that the, it's the water that flows out of the garden that then becomes these four rivers. So sometimes I've read it as like the garden is located somewhere among these, like in the midst of these four rivers but it's actually the garden produces these four rivers. And so the Tigris and the Euphrates, you know, is um, Mesopotamia, kind of one of the birthplaces of human civilization. And Kush is East Africa, maybe Ethiopia. 
Um, and so there's this sense of like all the life in the world is flowing out of this little garden. We don't know where the garden is, but we know that what emerges from it is life that gives life to the whole of the whole of this located world you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So in verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat it, you shall die. There's a fairly clear purpose there first for the human being. Like the human's job is to till the earth and to keep it, to be a gardener. That's our kind of fundamental role in life. And then we get that strange, the what you were talking about earlier, this, here's the tree, don't touch it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, um, I was reading about this a little bit the other day and sort of asking questions like, what do we mean by knowledge? of good and bad. What do we mean by good and bad? Like what, what is this actually sort of claiming? I read some commentators who thought good and bad could be sort of real and woe, but that you will know the totality, you will know, you will be familiar with, you'll become acquainted with the totality of what we now would say is the human experience, which Mm. is, which is real and woe, which is, you know, great joy and great suffering. It's not so much that there's like, they're trying to become omnipotent or there's sort of like a power play involved. It's sort of that there's a choice on the table. You can stay in this garden the way it is, or you can know more of the totality of experience and it's going to have highs and lows. Now, of course, God doesn't say you have a choice. God says, don't do it. But then God also puts it in the garden. So one of the things that I can't even remember who said this to me, but the Bible makes more sense if you read it backwards. So instead of saying, why would God have done this? Mm-hmm. Um, the question could be, why would a human being have written a story about God this way? Mm-hmm. And so along the lines, I think of what you were saying is there is this sense in which, yeah, human experience has tragic components to it. Um, there is, there is woe along with the wheel and, um, and in some level it's about n- the knowledge that we have and maybe even about moral discernment, about being able to know if what we're doing is good or bad and how to manipulate good and bad. There's this sense in which human beings in this story weren't created to have that kind of knowledge. We were to be more like, not exactly like squirrels, but like kind of like squirrels. Like um, we were supposed to be these innocent creatures with no sense of shame and no, like, no attempt to manipulate and deceive we were just going to be like, we were going to be like the greatest of the animals, but we were still going to be an animal. Um, and, but then we have this knowledge that separates us, this kind of self-awareness or self-consciousness of ourselves as creatures who have moral capacity, who will die, like who can think about things beyond the current moment. And mm-hmm. this text has a sense that maybe, like that's a complicated thing to be. So one way that I've read the story is like, it's trying to deal with the complexity of human experience, Mm -hmm. like knowing more than we really ought to know. Like we, we know stuff that gets us in trouble. Um, And this text is one way of talking about that maybe. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And I think that I can think of several examples of things that, that I've heard called sort of a club that nobody wants to be a part of, right? You go through some tragedy in your life and the only people who seem to really understand 
your situation and be able to help you with it are other people who have been through it. And that's really what gets you through is that sort of formation of community around that tragedy. And so as you were talking about like knowledge that we're not supposed to have, some of it is, some of it is the knowledge that you get through those experiences. And it's, it's interesting to think about why would someone write this, this perspective of why God put this tree in the garden and created humans in this way. And it does sort of offer one reflection on the question of why, why there is that suffering. Like maybe it wasn't God's choice that we suffer in that, but humans chose the full range of experience. And so we're going to have the full range. I like that. Okay. So at this point in the story, what we have is a garden with all of these trees that are delicious to eat with these two special trees, the knowledge of good and evil and the um, tree of life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then we have one human creature um, and that's everything that there is and these rivers. So then the rest of creation comes starting in this next verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So I just want to stop there um, because other things are getting ready to happen. But what do you make of that part of the story about where how animals are created and where they come from? It's a really good question. I think I have always gotten so hung up on the sort of role of women and the heteronormativity of the story in general. I've lost over the animals (laughs) entirely. Yeah, 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 yeah. The animals were in there. I don't know how you make the animals, Bobby. Well, so, I mean, this part fascinates me. And part of it's so... Like it really seems like God's plan is that this human being ought to have a companion and maybe that companion is going to be, you know, like a, a fish. Like a, yeah, like a fish of a some fish. kind, right? So God is kind of, I mean, God is sort of improvising right here. Like God has discovered like, oh, it's not good for humans to be alone. So what can we do about that? And so just like creating things and bringing them, right? And so this <laughs> see what sticks, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. here's a wallaby, you know. Like, what do you think about that? <laughs> the, the, the humans, like, oh, that seems okay, but like, not really a partner. Right. It's not like, really like a partner. Yeah. Here's a cow, you know. Here's a muskrat, you know. Like, um, here's a dung beetle, and so God's just like bringing all these things. I mean, I think is genuinely a little surprised that they aren't suitable companions. I don't know. That's just the way I read the story. Because if God knew, like at the end, none of these are going to be suitable, then like we could have kind of skipped. Why not skip that part? Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting to me when you think about the relationship of humans and the other animals, um, that they were created to be companions for us. And in some sense, they, they do function that way, but they're not they're not, the Hebrew is a partner corresponding to you or something like that. Mm-hmm. So these other animals aren't companions in that sense of like complementary beings or beings who are equal to us and can, um, can be uh, partners in, in, in the task of life. One thing that also gets lost sometimes in the, um, in the English is it calls the animals living creatures and 
earlier when God created the human um, in verse, where is that? Verse six, it says the man became a living being. And so in the English, in the NRSV anyway, living being is the human and living creature is the animal, which sounds like they're just different from each other. But the Hebrew for both is nefesh chaya, which means a living being, right? A living soul or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's calling human beings and animals by the same name, like we are this in, of the same kind. You know, what's interesting to me, too, is you pointed out before that, um, you know, the human is sort of created in order for a garden to be created. Right. Because the garden needs a keeper. Um, and then the animals are created to keep the human company. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that sets up a really interesting sort of... Um, I don't know the right word to use, but sort of what what was sort of primary in the plan of creation and how different things are interdependent and responsible for one another. Yeah, the humans are not responsible for the animals. The animals are. Oh, that's true. Yeah. There. So in some sense, the human being is to tend the garden and the animals are to be companions for the human. Or to entertain the human being. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is really different than Genesis 1, where human beings are really different over every living thing. Yeah. This, Although humans do get to name the animals. That is true. And so I've wondered about what is the, what is the sort of significance of that? Like, what is the, in terms of um, dominance? Mm -hmm. I think clearly the humans aren't just an animal among animals in this text. Yeah. I think none of the other animals are judged uh, to be kind of worthy um, uh, partners in this task of gardening. All right, so then we come to the, um, the next piece of the text, which you, which you are uh, leading us toward. Um, so what has just happened is for the uh, man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then uh, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with, with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, you clearly had some thoughts about this part of the text. So I, I will tell you my first thought, um, and then I have sort of stepped myself back from that thought a little bit. Um, but my first thought was like, this is some like bizarre utopian fantasy of a man who wants a partner who actually is himself. And mm -hmm. so he doesn't actually have to deal with anything that's at all different from himself. Mm -hmm. Now he has... He can look in the mirror and talk to his, you know, reflection. And he doesn't actually have to, you know, live in a relationship. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, which is probably not what they were going for in this story. <laughs> <laughs> but again, sort of looking at who do we think was writing this story? Sure. Um, to what extent do things need to be taken sort of, should things be taken literally? And to what extent do I just read it as human instead of man creating woman, more sort of like human and partnered human. I do think the, uh, I still think it's like a utopian fantasy of what intimate relationships are like. 
And I have more concern for what it sort of, for the heteronormativity of the story than for the role of women versus men. Yeah. Let's come back to that because that ending about the, so this the story turns out to have been kind of an etiology and an origin story for where marriage comes from. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so let's come back to that and just, I I really like where you're kind of headed with this conversation about the relationship of male and female um, in this text. And I think you're kind of gesturing toward a, uh, an understanding of this text in which that first creature who was created at the beginning, uh, who was called Ha'adam, the human, um, may not have been a, a biological male, but may have yeah. been kind of a gen, an ungendered or multi-gendered, however you want to think, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. human being. This uh, was pretty famously argued by Phyllis Tribble um, mm-hmm. in uh, God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality, but it's actually quite an ancient interpretation in the um, in the Jewish interpretive tradition that the first creature was um, sort of a gender neutral human. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you understand the text that way, then instead of the traditional understanding, which I think has been something like man was created first and then woman Mm -hmm. was out of his rib, what you instead have is Ha'adam, the gender undifferentiated human who upon the removal then becomes the ish, mm-hmm. the man, the biological male, and the isha, the biological female. So from an ungendered human, then you get a division of gender. A, a traditional reading of this text has been because man was created first and woman mm-hmm. is his helper, um, the biological male is the superior to the biological mm-hmm. And I think there is a reading of this text, uh, and I think a good one, and maybe the best one, um, which doesn't lead to that at all, but instead there was a human. Mm-hmm. There was no other animal that was equal to that human, and so that human was just split into two. Divided. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing is that word helper. Like, the word helper or helpmate, it's sometimes translated. Yeah. It sounds like a little, like the junior partner, like Robin to the, you know, the Adam's Batman or whatever. Yeah. That, that, um... That word gets used throughout the Bible. The word Hebrew is azer, um, which gets used throughout the Bible and in the Psalms, especially like even as a reference to God. And so the psalmist will cry out, Oh Lord, mm-hmm. helper. And that's the word, right? And mm-hmm. So there's nothing inherent in that word that, that means like less than or like the apprentice or mm-hmm. junior to. It just means sometimes we need help. Uh, and this is a creature who can help. Um, and it can be used of a creature who is superior um, and not inferior. And I would add in there that that, that um, the name Ezra, who, you know, there's a book of Ezra later, but it's also a common Jewish name, is also help. There's nothing, yeah, there's nothing weak about the idea of being, uh, of that sort of Hebrew root. There's no weakness associated with that. Yeah. Now, um, I want to he- hear your thoughts on the heteronormativity of this, of the gen, of the, uh, of the marriage kind of uh, turn at the end. Um, Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. I mean, I think um, the interpretation you were referring to before that um, the first human had no gender or all genders. 
and then was divided in some way um, is, is a helpful one. It's just not the dominant one that's sort of out there in the world. And so I, I feel like I spend more energy sort of resisting the dominant um, and somewhat crass idea that people of different sexes bodies fit together in a certain way because there was this thing that happened where one body was moved from the other body. So, so mostly for me, I'm aware of the heteronormativity of it and would try to bring up interpretations like the one that you mentioned um, to sort of expand people's ideas of what, um, what's possible in interpreting this passage. And again, I, I think of um, who I think the author was and what I imagine their lived experience probably was and, you know, sort of what we know now and how we can sort of expand upon the core messages and metaphors in the story to fit what we know about the world now. There is this kind of gender, like you were mentioning, not just gender complementarity, but sexual complementarity. Yeah. Like things fit together. So the the sexual union of male and female becomes a, like a recombining of the, mm-hmm. the primary. Right, to this initial, yeah. Yeah. I've read an interpretation, and right now I can't remember whose it is, um, but that was resisting that idea that this is about sexual complementarity and suggesting that it's more about the building of family units. Um, And so it's not that male and female fit together sexually, it's that they fit together in ways that form functional family units that can continue on um, a family. Um, and so a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife is about leaving one kind of set of relationships and beginning a new set of relationships. There's a way of reading that in which the genders of the people involved in the formation of the new family right. are kind of irrelevant. Are kind of irrelevant. So if there is, you know, um, yeah, yeah, same, same sex unions or whatever it might be, um, that uh, what matters is that they people find partners and build lives with them. Um, mm-hmm. and there's uh, there's continuity of community. As somebody who was single for a very long time in my life, I still kind of resist that interpretation because mm-hmm. it suggests that you ought always that you're not whole somehow. Right. Yeah. You ought always be mm-hmm. part of some other kind of unit in order to be a full human. Um, yeah. And I think that's not a helpful interpretation. All right, so we've done a lot of kind of digging into the text, and we've—I think—we've dug out some really interesting ideas. So my question is: Once you have read this text as a scholar, what do you walk away with um, as seeming important to the living of this day in this time and place? There, are, okay, I get two. One is sort of one is more dominant than the other, but um, so one that I just think is important to name is that. Um, even in Eden, where theoretically everything is all ideal and perfect and just, you know, just how we'd want it to be and pretty easy. We haven't eaten from the tree yet. Everything's easy. Um, people still have a job. <laughs> no, like that, that I feel like there's this fantasy now that like what life is really supposed to be is vacation. Yeah. Um, but the issue of finding meaningful work that helps you feel connected to. Yeah systems in which you exist it's written into the plan like this is it's it's an important thing and so figuring out the work piece I think is um more important than we give it credit for Mm. and the other thing for me is I mean about 
I do think this is like a crazy utopian fantasy of what it's like to be in relationship with people. Um, especially, I don't know what your experience of being in community is, but I love community, but there's a lot of complicated peopling (laughs) (laughs) that happens in community. Community life is very complicated, but this passage sort of also reminds me of the, the loneliness that can come not from like being in an intimate partnership with one person or not, but, um, how important that human to human connection mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Those are really great. Um, the couple of things that were standing out to me, one was all the way back at the beginning. We were talking about how uh, God really, what God really wanted was a garden mm-hmm. and human beings purpose was to tend the garden and to work and to till. And so when you think about a moment of environmental crisis, um, which we are, which we're in, um, Mm -hmm. to think that um, really part of that crisis is a disordering of the role of human beings relative to the created world. And that we have come to think that what matters is us and our access to resources and our ability to grow our economy year over year. Um, and that whatever happens to creation is kind of not that important. And this story is trying to, I think, flipping those roles to say, no, the, the only reason that human beings have value or the, at least the original value of human beings in this text is because we tend, we tend well to creation. And so I think this, this text I'm reading as a call back to remembering that our, our role is to be um, stewards and, and gardeners, farmers, um, who make sure that the, that, the, that the creation grows well. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about with this text is um, the, um, the creation of human beings out of the dirt and the fact that there is only one human being at the beginning. And you know, whatever you think about that, like biologically, uh, within the story, the, the claim is that we all descended from one common human ancestor. That is, we're all related. We're all part of this human family together. Even the people that we don't like or that we don't want to be a part of, we're connected to them. In the Mishnah, there's this uh, saying, because we are all descended from one human being, if you kill any person, it is as though you killed the entire world. And if you save one person, it's as though you saved the entire world. And I think that's a a really beautiful um, ancient Jewish interpretation of this text and, um, and both sides of it, right? That the value of human life is, is really important. Important and one life is as valuable as all the lives. And the reciprocal of that is it can seem overwhelming to try to care for every person who comes across our path or to think like there are people Mm -hmm. out there that I'll never be able to help. But to remember that because we're all connected, if you can help the person in front of you and I can help the person in front of me, uh, that has the same value as being able to, to to save everybody. Yeah. No, I hear a lot of, um, I hear both of us sort of circling around these themes of sort of interdependence and sort of Mm -hmm. being part of a system and understanding how that system works. And there's such a pull in American culture towards like the individual and sort of every person for themselves. And it's really destructive. 
I mean, it really, um, it's, it's destructive ultimately for our, our lives and our souls and our environment and our, and all the sort of systems that we live within. And I think this, this text gets to a lot of that. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation with you. Um, about Me too. This yeah, I've learned so much. So, um, so thanks for, uh, for being a part of the conversation today. And um, I'll look forward to talking with you again next time. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks for joining us for NLDR, the Narrative Lectionary Podcast for people on the go. Come back next week when we'll discuss Genesis 18 and 21. We'll see you then.